that Richard preached last week here. He's doing this morning at Alder Road. And I've come down here to uh, preach here what I did last Sunday with the Alder Road crowd. It's been really encouraging to hear all about what God is doing uh, in this congregation. Really exciting to uh, see how God is blessing and bringing new people amongst you. Great news that we've got 15 grand to buy a new kitchen. That will improve things. Um, so, yeah, thankful for all that Jesus is doing amongst us in this place. It was great to see Chris Main in the Echo this week. Did you see that as she disappeared into a sinkhole in her car? Did you see that? Yeah. Big news, big news in Paul. Chris Main driving into a sinkhole outside her house. <laughs> famous. She is famous. Okay. Um, a year or so ago, my daughter Georgina, who's normally here, but she's, uh, it's my daughter Susie's hen weekend this weekend, so Georgie's at Susie's hen weekend. Uh, just over a year ago, uh, Georgie got a, a new dog called Goose, uh, which Pat doesn't like the name of, but he's a fantastic dog. There should be a picture of him. Uh, there you go. There's Goose, the dog. Look at that dog. We love this dog. He's uh, brilliant. He's, um, uh, Grace and I have always had dogs in the, all the time we've been married, but I really love this dog. I mean, look at him. He's awesome. Look at the muscles on that dog. He is the most ripped dog <laughs> I have ever seen. He's fantastic. And uh, those of you who are dog owners will know this. Others will be mystified. But dogs do have very distinct personalities. And some dogs are nicer than other dogs, uh, just as some people are nicer than other people. Uh, Pat's saying, no, all dogs are lovely. No, some dogs are definitely nicer than <laughs> other dogs. This is a great dog. He's super affectionate. He's just brilliant. He's lovely. Uh, he's probably the favorite member of the household. Uh, everybody likes Goose better than anybody else. He's the, everybody's favorite. Uh, but he had one terrible habit, which was that he would not come back to be put back on the lead when he was out being walked. And if you've had a dog and, you know what, and you've had this experience, it is the most frustrating thing there can be. He didn't run off. Just when it came to put, put him back on the, on the lead, he wouldn't come back to be put on the lead. And he's a whippet, which means he cannot be caught. There is no human being. I don't care if you're Usain Bolt. Nobody can run faster than a whippet. He is like lightning. And we have had moments when we've had crowds of people in the park or on the beach trying to help us catch the dog. And you can't because he is a whippet. He will not be caught. He's faster than any mere human. And members of my family have been reduced to, um, literally reduced to, to tears of frustration, embarrassment, anger, shame at not being able to get the dog back. And uh, a couple of times it's been like two hours. They've been trying to get hold of the dog until finally the miracle happens and managed to catch him and... and, and uh, it happened a couple of times with Georgina and also with Grace coming home just in tears because it's been such an awful experience with this dog. Uh, we have had a miraculous transformation, and he's now perfect. He has been healed. I took him out. <laughs> it is almost a miracle. But there was that, it was almost a sense of shame because we've always had dogs. Our dogs have always been well Our dogs are good dogs. They don't jump up on people. They behave themselves. And... When you have a dog that won't come back, suddenly everybody's giving you advice about what you should be doing with your dog. And it's the kind of sense of shame at this dog who will not do what it's meant to do. Now, I wonder what your most embarrassing moment is. It's kind of a typical icebreaker question, isn't it? Maybe you're in a new life group, and first week of a new life group, you're getting to know each other. Tell us your most embarrassing moment. And you share that embarrassing thing, which kind of makes your tails curl a little bit to admit it, but it's funny and you're happy to share it. But 
What's not just embarrassing, what is your most shameful moment? What's the thing which doesn't just make your toes curl a little bit, but the thing which would make you, makes you cringe, curl up inside, the thing which makes you feel like you're dying inside, the thing which you don't want anybody to know about, the thing which is just too socially destructive to be able to share publicly? It, it might be that you're fortunate and you don't have anything like that in your life. You don't have that sense of shame. But there's probably quite a few people in this room who do know exactly what I'm talking about. And even as I begin to describe the feeling of shame, you're experiencing it inside right now, that sense of kind of wanting to curl up and die, feeling that everybody in the room is looking at you. That's how shame operates. Psalm 31 says, In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. What we're aiming for today, what I'm hoping to achieve this morning, is to to look at what shame is, to see why shame is powerful, and to help us to see how Jesus deals with our shame. And if we're going to do that, actually, we need to do a little bit of work first to try and understand some things. One of the things we need to understand is the distinction, the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt and shame might seem like very similar things, and we can use the words interchangeably, but actually they are in some ways quite different. And um, anthropologists tell us that Western societies like the UK have historically been guilt-based cultures, whereas actually most other parts of the world are shame-based cultures. Guilt is the emotion that we feel when we don't live up to a standard. There's a sense there's a law which needs to be kept, and if we don't keep that law, we feel guilty. And that law can be very arbitrary. It can be something which actually nobody else cares about, but for some reason you have a particular law, a sense of law in your life which you need to keep. So the vegetarian, who when nobody is looking, nobody's there, nobody sees, has a moment of weakness and sneaks a bacon sandwich... And who could blame them, because bacon sandwiches are God's gift to us all, but they feel this terrible sense of guilt because they've had a bacon sandwich. Or if you signed up for a gym membership in January, as many people did, and you had a plan to go three mornings a week to the gym, and then you found that it keeps slipping, and you haven't made it, and you miss one session, and then you miss two sessions, and even as you're lying in bed rather than being in the gym, you feel a sense of guilt. Now, why? It doesn't matter. Who cares? Nobody's looking. But you can feel that sense of guilt. Or, or one night you get a bit lazy and you throw a glass bottle, not into the recycling bin, but into the general bin. And then in the night you're waking up thinking, what would Greta think? And you get overwhelmed with guilt, and the next morning you're down there rummaging in the bin trying to get it out, even though it'll make no difference to the polar bears or anybody else in the grand scheme of things, but you have this sense of guilt because you put something that should have been recycled into the normal rubbish. This is a feeling that we, many of us, take for granted. It's the, it's the air, that we, air that we breathe, but actually people in lots of cultures don't feel the sense of guilt in the way that many of us in the West do. I'm going to give you an example from a book by an anthropologist of Harvard called Joseph Henrich, who wrote a book called uh, The Weirdest People in the World. Uh, Weird stands for Western Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic. And he says this is how we in the Western world are, and it is weird. And he gives this example 
of the difference between guilt and shame-based cultures. So in New York, where the United Nations is based, up until the year 2002, UN diplomats didn't have to pay parking fines. And in the five years between 1997 and 2002, UN diplomats racked up 150,000 unpaid parking fines in New York. $18 million worth of unpaid parking fines. And one of the amazing things about that is that a few countries, including the UK, Sweden, Canada, and Australia, were issued zero parking tickets. But there are other countries where every single member of their diplomatic delegation racked up over 100 unpaid parking tickets. Now, why is it that diplomats from some countries didn't get any parking tickets, whereas diplomats from other countries got dozens and dozens of them. It's the difference between coming from a guilt-based culture or a shame-based culture. If you come from a guilt-based culture, there's a standard, there's a law you have to keep. If you come from a shame-based culture, well, the law's a bit... It's arbitrary. It's not relevant. I'm not going to get fined anyway, so I'll just park where I want to park. Now, the sense of guilt that many of us feel actually comes directly from Christianity. It's this sense of a external standard of law, which we then internalize and holds us to account. And uh, Joseph Henrich says this is why we are weird in the West, because of this sense of guilt with which we live, which shapes us and motivates us. Shame works differently from guilt. In a shame-based culture, what counts is not an exterior arbitrary law, but what counts is relationships. In a guilt-based culture, culture, we care about what people's qualifications and merit is. In a, in, in a shame-based culture, you just care about cementing friendships, relationships. Uh, you care about how you're perceived by your family and your friends, by your clan. And there's a number of you here this morning who are from shame-based cultures, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. In a guilt-based culture like ours, we're very diligent about things like nepotism. You're not meant to favor your friends and family if it comes to positions in work or whatever. In a shame-based culture, of course you favor your friends and family because it's all about relationships. And so things like the trustees' meetings of Gateway Church, when the trustees of this church get together and meet, would make no sense in a shame-based culture because in our trustees' meeting, we're doing it in a very Western weird way. We're thinking about all the objective standards about if it comes to employing people, it has to be done, if you work in HR, you know, so if you've been a school governor or something like this, I'm a school governor, and I've been in, I was uh, a few years ago involved in interviewing for a new head teacher, and we weren't allowed, to, weren't allowed to ask the personal questions, the questions I wanted to ask as a human. Tell me about yourself. Are you married? Have you got kids? What are you like? You're not allowed to ask those questions because you just have to say, what are your qualifications? What effort have you put in? What merit have you displayed? Just kind of a tick box exercise. For people from a shame-based culture, that's weird. Because what it's all about is relationship, about the personal connection. And our guilt-based culture comes because of the Christian belief in God. There's a, a judge to whom we must give account, and that is more significant than family loyalty. And what has happened in the West over the centuries is that the sense of guilt has diminished the power of shame. Because in a guilt-based culture, you stand as an individual judged by the law, and that's what counts, rather than so much by your family connections. And over the centuries, that has morphed into the general sense of guilt that many of us live with. So if you've ever felt 
guilty about taking that extra slice of cake. And who cares? It's because that's the air that we breathe. Now, of course, this sense of guilt is a great driver of achievement. It's the Protestant work ethic. It's a sense that I've never done enough. There's always more that has to be done. If I don't do stuff, I feel guilty. That's, that's why the West has been economically successful. It's because our sense of guilt drives us to achieve more. But guilt can also be crippling because what guilt says to you is that you are never good enough and you can never do enough. And Christianity without Christ is absolutely merciless. Christianity without Christ is merciless. What we, if you have Christianity but without Jesus, what you have is, is a standard which you can never attain. And that leads to all kinds of anxiety and introspection and legalism. And it sucks all the joy and the fun out of life. And if you've ever been a school governor or if you work in HR, you know that. Those are not fun places because everything is a tick box. It's all about the standard which has to be kept. That's what guilt does. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus deals with our guilt because Jesus perfectly met the standard. He is the one who kept the law absolutely. And what we believe is that we put our faith in Jesus and his righteousness becomes ours. It counts as ours. That he has paid the debt. There's nothing more for us to do. We're free. That's the amazing gospel of grace. Christianity with Christ at the center of it. The grace of God. Guilt is dealt with. The debt is paid. And this might be, this might be what you most need to hear today because your problem might be a sense of guilt. And what you need to hear, maybe for the first time or maybe for the thousandth time, but you need to respond to it in a fresh way, is that Jesus has dealt with your guilt. He's paid the debt. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you feel guilty, what you need to do is come to Jesus and receive his grace. Put your faith in him. His righteousness is declared to be yours. Your sins are no longer counted against you. That fundamental guilt problem gets dealt with when we see, grasp, taste, live in the amazing grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. But we still have the problem of shame. I think perhaps the easiest way to summarize the difference between guilt and shame is this. Guilt says, I did wrong. There's a standard I've failed to meet, and I feel guilty. Shame says, I am wrong. There's something fundamentally dirty, disgusting, repulsive, objectionable about me. And it feels like shame is on the rise in our society. So we've been a guilt-based culture in the UK, but it feels like shame is on the rise. And that seems to be directly connected to the rise in social media. Because the way that social media operates is by pulling the levers of shame. 
Social media is all about how we are perceived by others and what we can offer to others. I'll follow you if you follow me. And social media operates on the values of our culture. Are you following the values of our culture? If you are, approval. If you're not, disapproval. And the phone in your pocket can keep you constantly aware of where you stand in the social hierarchy. Phone bings and somebody's liked what you've posted or dislikes or whatever it is, you have that sense of, am I being approved of? And um, this isn't just the younger people. We're obviously way aware of teens and 20s and living their lives in social media. If you're in your 20s, you know what it's like. But it's not just those in their teens and 20s. It's the same for the grannies as well. Because I see this, the grannies who are posting pictures of their grandkids and sitting there waiting for somebody to like their picture. So it's not just the younger people. It's across the generations of power of social media. Uh, eight years ago, which feels like a lifetime ago now in this stuff, John Ronson journalist and author, wrote a book called So You've Been Publicly Shamed, and he observes this. One day it hit me. Something of real consequence was happening. We were at the start of a great renaissance of public shaming. After a lull of 180 years since public punishments were phased out, shame was back in a big way. When we deployed shame, we were utilizing an immensely powerful tool. Social media is an immensely powerful tool which uses shame. And even if you're not on social media, you know this. So a few years ago, I made the decision to kind of step out of social media almost totally because I didn't feel it was doing my soul good. didn't feel I could really handle it. But I still know the power of shame. We know it because we know what happens if even a powerful person or a powerful institution comes under a social media shaming, how quickly they cower. And it's one of the amazing phenomena of our age, that you can have people who are powerful or institutions which are powerful, and when there's a social media pile on, that person or that institution immediately gives up and says, okay, we're sorry. It's the power of shame. And the real power of social media is the ability to cancel us, to cancel somebody, and that's what shame-based cultures operate by. The ultimate sanction as a shame-based culture is that you are cancelled, you're excluded, you're banished from the family. That is the ultimate sanction in a shame-based culture. You're no longer part of this family, you're no longer part of this community, you are dead to us. And social media is like that because social media can cancel you, it can exile you, it can shame you. Now the, the aim of this series we're in at the moment is to help us better understand what's happening in our culture and to show that Christianity offers better and more satisfying answers than our culture is. And we need to be alert to the fact that shame is increasingly powerful in our culture. So we need to understand what shame is and we need to understand how Jesus deals with it. We need to see that Jesus doesn't just deal with our guilt, he's also able to remove our shame. That Jesus deals with the law problem, that's guilt, but he also deals with the relationship problem, which is shame. Let me give you an example from Scripture. Joshua 5, verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. 
The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness for 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal, which sounds like roll in Hebrew, to this day. Now, this is a very graphic illustration of God dealing with shame. The Israelites had a guilt problem and they had a shame problem. Their guilt problem was that they had not obeyed the command of the Lord. They'd left Egypt. God had amazingly rescued them under the leadership of Moses. He'd given them the law spoken through Moses, revealed by God on the mountain. And yet the Israelites had not obeyed God. They'd disobeyed God. They'd rebelled against him. And as a consequence, that whole generation died in the wilderness rather than entering the promised land. They were guilty, and there was a price that had to be paid for their guilt. But they weren't just guilty, they also carried a sense of shame. What's described here as the reproach of Egypt, the reproach, the shame of Egypt. And they carried a sense of reproach, a sense of shame, because in Egypt they had been slaves. In Egypt they had been humiliated. In Egypt they'd even been made to kill their own children. And so they carried this sense of reproach, this sense of shame. And then it says that God rolls away their reproach. He rolls away their shame. And he does so by rolling away their foreskins. Any volunteers for some shame rolling this morning? Now, circumcision, which is mentioned, I haven't counted it, but several times in those verses the word circumcised and circumcision appears. Circumcision is something which... Strangely, we end up talking a lot about in church life because it appears so often in the Bible. Circumcision was the sign that the people of Israel were cut off from the other nations, that they were God's distinct people. They were a special chosen people marked out as God's. And for those 40 years in the wilderness, they hadn't been circumcised, and now they are, and the shame of slavery is rolled away. What happens at that moment, this moment of consecration before God, is that they are marked out as those who can stand without shame before God. They, have, they were a people who were nothing. They were a cancelled people. They were an enslaved people. They were people who were covered in shame and reproach. But at this moment, God says to them, your shame has been rolled away. You now have a sense of identity, a sense of belonging. Fear, shame, exile has been dealt with. You have come home. You've come home to the Lord, and you're going to come home to the land that I promised to give you. Your shame is being rolled away. It's a moment of rescue. Now for those of us who are Christians, circumcision is no longer required. We're told in Romans 2.29 that what we now experience as Christians is not a physical circumcision, but a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. No uh, knife-wielding needed this morning. And actually what circumcision of the heart by the Spirit means is that we receive a more complete experience of God rolling away our reproach, of shame being removed from us. This is how the Apostle Peter puts it, 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected, 
shamed. Jesus was shamed by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. In Christ, we are welcomed in. In Christ, we're made part of the family. You come to Christ and there isn't any relational exclusion anymore. There's no reproach. There's a welcome. There's inclusion. We emphasize inclusion a lot in our society at the moment, but real inclusion is to be found in Christ, to take your stand on the living stone, to be built into a spiritual house, to become a holy priesthood, to be identified as belonging to God. In Christ, our reproach, our shame is rolled away. That's good news. Now, what should we do about this? One thing we need to do is to identify the distortions. This is something we're saying throughout this series. We need to identify the way that Christian values have become distorted in our culture. The reality is that when we feel guilt, the reason that we feel guilt is because there is a standard. And none of us can live up perfectly to the standards at which we ought to live. And that's why we feel guilt. Good news is that Jesus deals with our guilt because he has met the standard. But we can also experience shame because there are things that are shaming. And the tragedy of our culture is that our society today has fallen right into what is described in Romans chapter 1, where it says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. The thing is that the lusts of our culture, the lust our culture celebrates, are things of which actually we should feel ashamed. And we need to see through the lies which our culture tells. A lot of this does, as we've touched on this series the last few weeks, a lot of this does revolve around sexuality. And our culture would tell us that you should never feel ashamed about your sexual desires or preferences or habits But the reality is that some of those things are shameful. And the reality is that many people do carry a sense of shame because of the things that they've done or the things which have been done to them, no matter what our culture says. I was preaching at another church a few weeks ago, and afterwards a young woman, I guess in her late 20s, came up to speak to me, and partly because of what I'd I'd preached about and partly because of another talk she'd heard earlier in the week, she was having a powerful encounter with Jesus. She had lived as young women in the city live. And she recognized that she was living with a real sense of shame and that Jesus was the one who was able to deliver her. It was a beautiful moment. She said, I thought this was what freedom was. I thought this was how to make life happy. But actually, I realized I'd just been taken advantage of. I'd just been used. I felt, I felt ashamed. And she had an encounter with Jesus where her shame was beginning to be rolled away. We need to identify the distortions in our culture. And then we need to bring our shame to Jesus. Think of what that scripture says. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. If you you feel shame, 
if you live with a sense of social exclusion, if there are things which have happened to you, maybe things that you've done or maybe things that have been done to you which are just so appalling, you, you couldn't even bear for them to be mentioned, the thing which, even as I've been talking this morning, does make you want to curl up and die inside. Well, therapy might help you. There might be some things you would be helped by talking through and processing. And it might be that you need to do some relational work if the cause of your shame is a breakdown of relationship with somebody. But Christ is the cornerstone, and you need to take your stand on him. He is the one who ultimately is able to roll away the reproach, able to roll away our shame. The thing about shame is that it can be like a, the sense of a bad smell which is following you. You're always conscious of it, and you think whenever you are with other people, they can smell it as well, even though they're usually oblivious to it. But you have this sense, I'm... Uh, there's something about me which stinks. That's how shame works. And, and, and we have an enemy who would want you, if you're a Christian, to think that you're still tainted by shame. It says in Revelation 12 that uh, the enemy, Satan, is the accuser of the brethren who accuses us day and night. And if there have been things in your history which have been shameful things that you've done or things that have been done to you which are shameful, you have an enemy who would be wanting you to be thinking about those things and want your life to be conditioned and shaped by them all the time. He'll be accusing you and saying, you are shameful, you stink, you are repulsive, you're not worthy. That's the accusation that will come. And what we need to do is turn to Christ and say, no, Christ is the one who rolls away my reproach. And actually that stuff which feels so shameful, I can hold it up when Satan comes with those words of accusation. Rather than running away and curling up and wanting to die, you can hold those things up and say, yes, these things did happen to me, or these things I did do, but Christ has rolled away my approach. And so when I think about those things, it's not with a sense of shame, but a sense of wonder that Christ has removed them from me. They no longer condemn me because Christ has cleansed me and accepted me. He's rolled away my approach. And so what you might need to experience today is a a, a spiritual knife. You might need to know, maybe for the first time, maybe you're here for the very first time this morning, maybe you love Jesus, but you need to know this in a fresh way, a, a spiritual circumcision that rolls away your approach. Shame makes us feel dirty, it makes us feel untouchable, it makes us feel unwanted. But Jesus cleanses us and welcomes us. And you can trust Jesus. Think about that moment at, uh, at Gilgal, when after 40 years, Joshua stood up before the multitudes of Israel and said, okay, lads, we haven't done this for a long time, but it's time to get the flint knives out. It's time for a circumcision. I should imagine there was an atmosphere of nervousness which fell upon the camp. And this morning, you might feel that, even as I've been speaking, as I say, you might need to experience a spiritual circumcision. You might feel a nervousness. If I entrust what is most vulnerable in my life to Jesus, am I just going to be held up to further shame? That's that's what shame would say to you. That's what the accused would say to you. Don't respond to Jesus. Hide it away. Cover it up. Curl up. Keep it closed. But what you might most need, because the thing that's going to be most healing, is to bring your shame to Jesus and allow him to use a spiritual knife to cut it off and to roll it away. 
you can trust Jesus. Jesus isn't going to harm you. He's not going to disfigure you. Jesus is going to heal you and bring you into wholeness of life. Psalm 31. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Lord, I do pray that for us this morning. I pray for those here this morning who do feel a sense of shame, that they would take refuge in you and would know your deliverance, know that they are covered by the righteousness of Christ, that you're the one who rolls away our approach. Spirit of God, I pray that you'd move in this room right now and you'd begin to bring that sharp knife which brings cleansing to those who need to receive it. I pray for the courage to move towards you, Jesus, and allow you to roll away reproach and shame. Lord, I pray for those as well here whose lives are too shaped by guilt, always trying to, always struggling with that feeling of not being good enough, not having done what they should. I pray for a fresh experience of your amazing grace this morning. That Jesus, you have carried our sin, that we would be declared to be righteous. That we're no longer judged by the standards of the law, but declared to be your adopted sons and daughters. So let us live in the truth of that grace and that freedom, I pray. Amen. What we're going to do now is, uh, as we sing our next song, we're going to come and take the bread and the wine, communion. What I encourage you to do is to come and take the bread and the wine while we're singing, come back to your seats, and then Nathaniel will lead it as we take us together. This is a powerful moment. As we take the bread and the wine, we are reminded, we remind ourselves of Christ's sacrifice and what that does. And Christ's sacrifice deals with our guilt and deals with our shame. So as we take it, come before Jesus. If you're living with a sense of freedom and grace, wonderful. Give thanks to Jesus as you take the bread and the wine. Thank you. I thank you again, Lord, for your amazing grace towards me. But if, you, if you're resting with a sense of guilt or a sense of shame, as you take the bread and the wine, appeal to Jesus. Jesus, would you come and roll it away? Would you, I entrust myself to you, Jesus, to wield that spiritual scalpel, believing that you're able to set me free. And it'd be great at the end of our service to pray for people and minister to each other as well and see God set some people free and break some things which have held you and see you walking in more liberty and freedom and the joy of God's grace. So let's stand, let's sing, and let's come and take the bread and wine.